Let's pray together as we open his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would lead us and guide us as we open it together. I pray that your Holy Spirit can flow out upon us. Guide us in truth, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was privileged as a boy to grow up in southern Oregon. In a little town, you probably never heard of it, called Medford. (laughs) And not too far from Medford, there was a mountain called Huckleberry Mountain. Does anybody know about Huckleberry Mountain? No? Good. Because there's lots of huckleberries on Huckleberry Mountain. When I was a boy growing up, my parents and grandparents would take me on a trip up Huckleberry Mountain. And I don't know if it has a different name. We always called it Huckleberry Mountain because it was filled with huckleberry bushes. And we'd spend the entire day on the side of the mountain uh, going by these low-covered bushes collecting berries. We would collect bucketfuls of huckleberries. I mean, bucketfuls. My bucket was always less full than everyone else's, perhaps because I kept eating half of them. (laughs) One one berry in, two berries out. (laughs) And we'd keep going through. We'd get bucketfuls of huckleberries. Then we'd take them home. And as we'd get home, we'd start processing the berries. We'd make huckleberry pancakes. Anybody ever had huckleberry pancakes? Huckleberry cobbler? Huckleberry pie? We made it all. And it was wonderful. But you know, as we hunted for these berries, we learned that bushes can deceive. Did you know a bush can lie to you? From a distance, every bush looked alike. Every bush put out its green leaves and almost shouted, I'm full of berries, just come and get them. But the truth is, is that not every bush was full of berries. It wasn't until you got up close and began searching under every leaf that you would discover that some bushes were filled with fruit and others were not. It certainly was a disappointment to my young boy mind when I came to a bush dreaming of huckleberry pancakes and huckleberry pie only to find leaves and twigs. And sadly, that is how it is with many Christian lives. From the outside, they look like they're filled with fruit. But you don't know until you examine under every leaf. Have you ever felt like a fruitless huckleberry bush? You go to church, you read your Bible, you pray, you listen and watch others talk about God, but when you search the leaves of your own life, you don't find any fruit. Have you ever wondered if you're saved or lost? Ever wondered whether or not you're going to heaven Have you ever thought to yourself, do I belong to Jesus? How do I really know whether I'm converted? 
Jesus answered this question in the most peculiar way by demonstrating perhaps his most peculiar miracle. It involved a fig tree, and you'll find it in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. It says, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So the Bible records Jesus sees the fig tree in the distance, it's covered with leaves, and it was an out-of-place sight because you wouldn't expect to see leaves on that fig tree. Why? Because figs didn't grow at that season. It was out of season. It was not ordinary. I heard somebody the other day say, because of all the sunshine, some of the flowers are beginning to bloom. And I look at that and I think to myself, they only bloom to die. Because winter isn't over yet, is it? It's not spring. Those flowers have been deceived. And here is this fig tree bearing leaves as if it's spring. And Jesus goes to it. What a strange sight. A fig tree bearing leaves when it's the dead of winter. He goes to the fig tree. He looks at it. Lo and behold, there's all these leaves, but there's no fruit. To see a fig tree at the time of Jesus, which was covered with leaves, would be a sure indication that it was loaded with fruit. But when Jesus comes to this particular fig tree... Only leaves. As the disciples and Jesus begin searching for fruit, starting with the low branches and working their way up, they look under all the leaves and nothing, not a single fig in the whole tree. So what does Jesus do? What does He do? Curses it. Let no one eat fruit fruit from you ever again. And then the Bible says His disciples what? Heard it. Jesus cursed the tree. We find out later in the verse that it it actually withered up and died. Stands out as one of the strangest accounts of Jesus' miracles. And the reason it's so strange is normally everything Jesus did brought life. We're expecting, we expect to see Jesus heal, not wither. We expect Him to speak words that bring life, not words that bring death. Why? Why did Jesus curse instead of bless? Why did He destroy instead of heal? I want you to know that Jesus wasn't arbitrary in His actions. He wasn't angry at the tree, per se, 
Jesus used a deceivingly lush but disappointingly barren tree to illustrate a deep spiritual lesson, a lesson that we can also gain spiritual insight from. The fig tree was a living lesson meant to show the condition of the Jewish nation and the condition of the fruitless Christian. The Jewish nation had been chosen by God to be his representative people, a whole nation on which he could bestow his blessings and show the world God's great plan for all mankind. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a what? What does it say on the screen? For a light of the Gentiles. Those who were groping in darkness, if they were to see God's ideal for humanity, were to look at God's people and see God's people walking in the footsteps of Jesus day by day, living a holy life and say, ah, that is what God wants from us. That is what God's ideal is for us. That right there is an example of what God wants to elevate us to be. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, just as you and I were called to be a light to the world. Now, being a light to to the world doesn't just mean that you know all the right answers. Being a light to the world means that you're a specimen of what God can do with a sinner like you. God takes weak people. Remember, the disciples said, Were it not for the grace of God, we would be like everyone else. You aren't special because you were born at the right time and right place. You aren't, you don't have everything all figured out because you're you're so smart and wise. It is God's goodness that makes you who you are. And Israel and you and I were called by God to be a light to the rest of the world, that His grace poured out in our life can give hope, inspire with hope, those who are in need of God's grace. That they also might call on Him. But Israel had been so focused on how they appeared that they lost their very purpose as a nation. They were caught up in their ceremonies, their rituals, their temple, and all the things that that they didn't stop to realize what God prizes most in a character that reflects Him. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11 says... To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Now skip down to verse 16. Wash yourselves, 
Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Those are the things that God is looking for in his people. Now, question, is it possible to live as a Christian... and yet not be converted. Is it possible to go to the temple and make a sacrifice? Hundreds of sacrifices, and yet not have a converted heart. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto white sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. The Pharisees were an example of those who played the part of a Christian, but were not truly converted. They made sure that the outside was clean while the inside was broken and dead. Those who live a life where we are simply culturally Christian or who pride themselves in counting the generations that have been Seventh-day Adventists in their family, where we do what we do not because we have a love for the truth, but because that's what we've always done, are becoming barren fig trees with leaves and no fruit. One of the main problems is that we have been taught to look at certain things as evidence that we are truly converted Christians. One of the things that people look at is they look to a date in their past as evidence that they belong to Jesus. Now, the date they accepted Jesus in their heart, that one night that they said a prayer, called out to God for help, and everything got better, the date they were baptized... After all, that's the date we officially join the church of God. We get a certificate on that date. Or maybe it's the date we started to come back to church. But none of these events are sure and solid evidence that we belong to Christ. They don't give us assurance that we are truly converted Christians. There may be many, many, many people who have a baptism date, a date that they gave their heart to Jesus, a date that they made some sort of spiritual commitment, and yet... They won't end up in heaven. Many people who have baptismal certificates and yet still won't be there. We cannot rest on dates or past commitments to know that our souls are secure. Many who rest on dates rest on the, the theory of once saved, always saved which simply means that once a person accepts Jesus, it's impossible for them to be lost. But consider King Saul. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 11, uh, the Bible calls King Saul a prophet. It came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that is come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Was Saul a true prophet? 
Did he prophesy? Bible says he did. Bible sa- the Bible says that he prophesied and that he was filled with the Spirit of God with all the other prophets. We could look at Saul and from all what we can see, we would say, Saul is saved. And then you keep flipping the pages in your Bible and you come to 1 Samuel 31, verse 4. Twenty chapters later, and we're still in Saul's life. And it says, Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. At the end of his life, Saul consulted a witch, spoke with the dead, and committed suicide. And we look at Saul and we say, Saul the prophet, what happened? The one who had a date in which they prophesied for the Lord was filled with the Spirit in such a way that no one could doubt that he was filled with the Spirit on that day. And yet at the end of his life, he couldn't look back at that date and say, I'm saved because one day I was filled with the Spirit. The man who was once saved ended his life lost. God never takes from us our freedom of choice. We can choose Him or not choose Him, and so there is no security in placing our confidence in a date that we made a decision. Others look to a title as evidence that they belong to Jesus. I still remember, and I've shared this with you before, going to a Bible study in someone's driveway when their neighbor came over, Beer can in one hand, cigarette in the other, saying, I'm going to heaven. That's how he introduced himself to me. Not, hi, my name is, or what's your name, or hey, have we met before? Nope. He came to the driveway. I'm going to heaven. My response was, how do you know you're going to heaven? And he said, I haven't killed nobody. And... Uh, I haven't stole nothing. Said, I'm going to heaven. Said, well, that's two out of ten. <laughs> and in the school I went to, that equals 20%, and my teacher wouldn't pass me for 20%. But what was he relying upon? A title. I'm a good person. I don't steal. I haven't murdered anybody. The problem is, the Bible says that no one is good. Not one. You can't look at your life and say, I'm a good person, therefore everything is going to be okay. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us bear a good or righteous title on our own. You can't say, I'm a Christian. I was baptized into the church as a child. I'm going to heaven. You can't say, I'm a health-conscious vegetarian. Did you know that there are levels of health? You have the, I'll eat whatever I want level. I should put that down here, right? Eat whatever I want. And then you come to the Bible and you learn about clean and unclean meats. 
And you realize that not everything is meant to be eaten. Squirrel and armadillo are on this side, while cows and sheep are on this side. And the two should not be crossed. So you have clean and unclean meats. And as you continue to move on in your study of the Bible, you come to Daniel's diet, which is a vegetarian diet. It was water and vegetables, right? That's not just vegetarian, that's vegan. But did you know that you have not yet reached the top when you've become a vegan? There's another level. A raw foodist. That's right. And there's, that's not even the top. Delany's grandmother told me of a man who ate only fruit. He was a fruitarian. That's even higher. But even if you're a fruitarian, it will not add one inch in your standing with the Lord. You can be chasing that food pyramid for the rest of your life trying to reach to the top, and it won't, uh, it won't lead you to heaven. There are others who say, I'm going to go in solitary confinement as a monk. And by the way, uh, you know what you call an Adventist monk? called off-grid living. <laughs> off-grid living. Off-grid. Meaning you don't, you don't have electricity or water. You cloister yourself up in a mountain. And by the way, I have longed all my life to live in a cabin off-grid. Probably because I don't know how much work it actually would be if I were to live off-grid. But we live with these dreams, you know. Flee the city live by ourselves in a little community in the mountain and have nothing to do with the world. That's an Adventist monk. Jesus didn't live that way. He taught us not to put our houses in the city, but we're always to work the cities. Because there's people who are His children there who are lost, who need to be saved. So we're not to look to titles as evidence that we belong to Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. And by the way, uh, don't mistake me when I go through some of these things. I'm only saying that these won't bring you closer to, to heaven. Living an off-grid lifestyle, learning to be independent and you know, making your own sauerkraut and growing your own veggies and those sorts of things, those are positive. Those are things God's people should do. Uh, living a vegan, vegetarian, even raw food diet 
positive, and you'll reap benefits in your health. But none of this is going to give us assurance in our heart that we're right with the Lord. We can be fruitarians who live all our days on the top of a mountain and be as lost as the man who's sleeping on the sidewalk in the middle of the city. This is not where we find our assurance of salvation. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, says Paul, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted, what? A loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. Paul looked at all the outward things, all the titles, and he said, I count them all worthless, if but I can have one thing, and it's the one thing that matters. Where is Christ in your life? The knowledge of Jesus Christ. That God's people would pursue it. You know, others look to their good and charitable works. I give to the poor. I volunteer at my local club. I'm a decent citizen. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done and not leave the others undone. Pharisees, you do all these works, but your heart still has not been converted. The Pharisees were all these things. They had dates, they had titles, they had good and charitable works, but notice what John said to the Pharisees in Matthew 3 and verse 7. He says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Titles won't do. Dates won't do. Good and charitable works won't do. And then there are others who go through that whole list and say, well, then it's impossible to have assurance that we are truly converted. We can never say, I'm saved. But if this were true, why were all these promises given to us in God's Word? Promises like these. For, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For whoever shall call, for who? 
For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. Is that a promise? Who backs that promise? God backs that promise. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, who did He give that promise to? It's your promise. It's a promise to whosoever. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God who is what? Rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here are the promises of God. And those promises were given for you to believe in. Do you believe that? God gave you these promises for you to believe in them. They were given for you to claim. They were given to inspire you with hope in your moments of doubt. Don't believe the devil's lie that you cannot know what Christ himself has promised. If you believe in Jesus Christ and have placed your faith in him and his work of salvation, if you have confessed and forsaken your sins, what barrier remains that you should not claim the promise of salvation? Which he has promised For you. Manuscript Release, Volume 6, page 31. Let's read it together. When any soul approaches God as his Father, heaven becomes his home. He is a member of the royal family, a child of the heavenly King. He holds a life insurance policy endorsed by the Lord God who created him. And all who hold this life insurance policy are linked with the family of the redeemed by a tie which cannot be broken. Now, what's an insurance policy? An insurance policy is nothing more than a promise. And the promise is spelled out in the contract. If you get in a wreck and you have full coverage, we promise as State Farm Insurance that we will cover the cost. Insurance should give you assurance. But this isn't just any normal insurance policy because you know I really don't like insurance companies. You can write them for months, turn in every receipt and still be denied. How do I know? I can tell you the stories after church. Insurance companies may let you down. 
It helps if your lawyer writes them a letter. But God's life insurance policy will never let you down. When he writes a policy, it's a contract signed in his own blood for you. His promises are sure. You can go to, the, you can go to heaven with them. You say, Lord, here is what you said to me. Too many of us are afraid to claim the promises of God because we're afraid to claim too much for ourselves. We say, I'm going to live here and just say, I'm a sinner and I hope I go to heaven. I hope I go to heaven. I hope, I really hope that I'm saved. You're giving too much power to the devil's deceptions and too little power to the promises of Christ. If Jesus said it, you can hang your entire life on it. And that's where we need to be in our experience when we come to Jacob's time of trouble. Does that mean that we don't question? No. We continue to question and look in our life to see if there's any sin that's unconfessed while at the same time, with an iron grip of faith, we hold to the green cord of God's promises and say, I will not let you go because you didn't let me go. Steps to Christ, page 70 through 72, says, we should not make self the center and indulge anxiety and fear as to what? Whether we shall be saved. Who are we making the center? If we indulge with anxiety and fear whether or not we're saved? Self. We should not make self the center and indulge anxiety and fear as to whether we shall be saved. All this turns the soul away from the source of our strength. Commit the keeping of your soul to God and trust in Him. Talk and think of Jesus. Let self be lost in Him. Put away all doubt. Dismiss your fears. Rest in God. He is able to keep that which you have committed to Him. If you will leave yourself in His hands, He will bring you off more than conquerors through Him that has loved you. Christians can have boldness. In fact, the Bible says that so sure are the promises of Jesus that we, come, we can come before His throne with boldness. Claiming His promises as our right to His mercy and His grace. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, you should wear a smile on your face because of the promises that Jesus has given to you. Because you know that those promises are sure. No date can give you assurance of salvation. No title can give you that assurance. No good deeds or extraordinary humanitarian efforts can win you a place in heaven. Assurance of salvation can be yours. It's a gift from God as we rest on the promises of Christ. Only as you believe in His work of salvation can you claim salvation for yourself. As you trust in the work of Christ to save you, a wonderful and mysterious change begins to take place inside of you. This is the work of conversion. It's not something you do. 
yet something that Christ does in you. Some have wanted, wanted to know, how can I be converted? How can I change? The first step is to recognize you can't change. No man or woman can convert themselves. Conversion is a gift that the Holy Spirit brings to a life that centers on Him in faith. And when you place your faith on Christ and His promises, that conversion is the result. And it's His work in you. 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. A Pharisee came to Jesus in John chapter 3, wondering this very thing. How can I change myself? I fast, I go to synagogue, I'm a teacher of the law, and yet when I look inside, I see a need for change. So he comes to Jesus, and Jesus answered his heart question by saying, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, thought Nicodemus. How can I be born again? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus wanted to, to figure out, is there something I need to do? And Jesus' answer to him was, well, the only thing that needs to happen in your life is you need to be born again. How do I, how do I be born again? I mean, you think of Nicodemus, he's thinking about this process. Being born again. How can I shrink myself down small enough that I can fit back in my mother's womb? I mean, how does this work? And Jesus said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's not your work. This is the Holy Spirit's work. Being born again is a work that the Holy Spirit does in your life as you submit and commit your life to Christ. He's the one that makes the change. He's the one that takes out the heart of stone and gives you the heart of flesh. He's the one that works that work of reformation inside of you. You can't, just as you can't see where the wind goes or where it comes from, so you don't know how the Holy Spirit is going to fix everything inside your life. All you can do is trust that He will and witness the effects of His work in your life, just as you witness the effects of the wind on the world around us. We can know that we are truly converted because the Holy Spirit will begin a process inside of us in Scripture called being born again. The new birth, the new creation, conversion, it's when you begin to change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, 
He is a what? New creature. This is a promise, by the way. A promise for you. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When a person is converted, steps of Christ says, a change will be seen in the character, the habits, the pursuits. The contrast will be clear and decided between what they have been and what they are. And it's important to know that this change is not solely an outward change. The barren fig tree represents an outward change without an inward renewal. Reforming your lifestyle is not the gold standard of conversion. Changing your habits can be done without being converted, but only Christ can change the thoughts and inclinations of the heart. A better test of conversion is to ask, Who has the heart? With whom are the thoughts? Of whom do we love to converse? Who has our warmest affections and our best energies? If we are Christ, our thoughts are with Him and our sweetest thoughts are of Him. All we have and are is consecrated to Him. We long to bear His image, breathe His Spirit, do His will, and please Him in all things. That's the test. And you could could do this test throughout the week. As you're going through your daily task, you say, where have my thoughts been the last two hours? Three hours, four hours. What have my conversations been focused on this past day? Where was the focus of my mind and my heart this past day? It's not that we aren't going to talk or focus on other things, but can a Christian, a true Christian, go through an entire day without at least once thinking and talking about Christ, without once having him, him enter into our heart? Trying to remember. Yeah, this year... This year's 13 years, right? Marriage. 14. 12? I'm close. 15? Wow. Good thing the couch is comfortable. 15 years. My wife and I when we started dating. I remember the first time we saw each other, we spent an entire weekend together. And uh, she ended up dropping me off at the airport. And I was walking to my plane, just beaming, smiling. And I sat down next to the lady who was next to me in the plane. And she said, man, you smile a lot. <laughs> I said, I know, I wish I could stop, but my, I can't. My cheeks hurt. I've been smiling all weekend. Every day I thought of this girl that I had met. Every single day. It wasn't actually work. I couldn't help it. I'd be doing my homework 
and I'd think about her. I'd be uh, playing basketball, and I'd shoot a basket and make it and think, man, I wish she was here to see that. I mean, I just thought about her all the time. And you know why? I mean, it wasn't a burden. It wasn't like, man, I got to think about her today. She had my heart. And friends, when Christ has your heart, He fills your thoughts. You look forward to that time in the morning where you can spend time with Him and hear His voice because this is your shepherd. Am I converted? Ask yourself the question, who has my heart? Who has my thoughts? Of who do I focus on? Without internal regeneration, without transformation, without the change that comes through the new life in Christ, without the experience of conversion, no one can be saved. Well, somebody here says, what if I don't see the changes inside myself yet? What if I don't see the fruit in my life yet? What if I don't feel like I've arrived yet? I mean, after all, Pastor, I'm not yet a fruitarian. Let me tell you a story. My wife and I lived in um, Phoenix, Arizona. We actually lived in a city just outside of Phoenix called Surprise, Arizona. And I bought a tree called a bougainvillea. Have you ever heard of a bougainvillea? Huh? Yeah, let me see how you spell it. B-O-U-G-A-I-N-V-I-L-L-E-A. How'd you say it, Mara? Boganvillea. Ah, oh, close enough. Anyways, it was a pretty tree. It's for 10 months out of the year, it's covered with flowers. And these flowers are brilliant. I mean, the whole thing is covered with just brilliant, brilliant pink flowers. So I planted this beautiful tree out in front of my house and some little creature, and I don't know who it was or what it was, I wish I could have caught it and killed it, ate my tree. I mean, this thing was loaded with leaves and flowers all over it and it ate every last one. And I kept searching for it and I never found it. Until it, the only thing left was a single barren stick sticking out of the ground. That was it. I was disgusted. I was upset. And uh, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to go out there, pull this ridiculous stick out of the ground and throw it in the trash. But I was too busy to actually carry out my plans And uh, the watering system at our house just kept watering it. And after a month, you know what happened? That silly thing began growing leaves again. And it eventually bloomed and was filled with flowers. And I thought to myself, what if I had given up on that tree simply because I didn't see the blooms as soon as I thought I should have? What if I had given up and said, forget it, we're going to cut this thing off right now and throw it away? 
what would have happened? I would have ended the potential for that tree to bloom. We self-sabotage. You know that, right? We don't see that we're where we want to be, and so our, the devil leads us to say, I'm just going to give up. Jesus, understanding that humans do this, spoke a parable in Luke 13. A certain man had a fig tree. Here's another fig tree. Planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and how much did he find? He found none. Verse 7. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. What does dung it mean? Oh, fertilize it. Oh, yeah, fertilize. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. What was it in the parable that he did to the tree? He gave it more time. First, he gave it more time. Second, he gave it water and he dunged it. Meaning he put fertilizer on it. And he waited, believing that fruit would come. He had faith in the process. And that's what you need, friend. You need faith in the process. Jesus promised that if you seek Him with your whole heart, you will bear fruit. Stick with it. Don't give up. Just because you don't see all the changes you want to see immediately in your life, don't cut it off. Stick with it. Hold on to the promises of Jesus. What's the answer? If you aren't bearing fruit, you just need a little more water and sunshine. The fruit will come in time. Just keep watering your soul with the promises and instructions of God's Word. Place your faith in them. Let the promises of God soak deep into your life. Meditate on God's promises of salvation, of eternity, of your true identity in Him until you feel your soul grasp these promises by faith. Let your life be warmed by the bright rays of the righteousness of Christ. Let your soul grasp the promise given that Christ's righteousness covers you and is promised to implant in you a new heart. Steps to Christ, page 62. If you give yourself to Him and accept Him as your Savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for His sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. More than this, Christ changes the heart. Amen. John 15 and verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Trust the process. Abide in Christ. Let your life focus on Him. Make sure every day that you are gaining the reign of His Holy Spirit, the reign of His Word, soaking up His promises and and dwelling upon Christ so that His goodness shines upon you. And as time goes by, you will bear fruit. 
Steps of Christ, page 57. Let's read this one together. While we cannot do anything to change our hearts or to bring ourselves into harmony with God, while we must not trust at all to ourselves or our good works, our lives will reveal whether the grace of God is dwelling within us. Your lives will reveal it. Trust the process. Is our life in harmony with the law of God? You know, that's the test of conversion. That's the test of salvation. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Revelation 14.12 also tells us that the patience of the saints are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, who is responsible for bringing our life into harmony with the law of God? Philippians 2.13 For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's true. We need to submit our will to, to God. That is true. But you can no more bring your life into harmony than that little stick sticking out of my front yard could produce buds and flowers without being watered and given sunlight. You can't do it. You can give your heart to the Lord. You can give your will to Him. But it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So when your life is brought into harmony with His law, you don't say, Amen, that was hard work. You say, Praise God. Hallelujah, praise God for the work which He has done that I couldn't do. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing. What does it say? Being what? Confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Our work is to look to Christ, meditate and believe on His promises, and give Him our will day by day. And He will bring forth the fruits of true conversion in your life. That is the test of discipleship. Would you like to say today, Lord, I trust You and the promise of Your Word. I believe that through You I am saved. Would you say today, Lord, I don't want to be a barren fig tree So work in me as I work for you until the fruits of a Christ-like character are born in my life. If you'd like to do that, I'd just ask that you would bow your head and I'd like to invite you to repeat after me in this prayer. Lord, I trust you. I trust in the promises of your word. I believe that through those promises I am saved. Lord, I don't want to be a barren fig tree. So please work in me as I work for you until the fruits of a Christ-like character are born in my life. In Jesus' name.